this man had gone to Jerusalem to worship and on his way home was sitting in the chariot reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. The spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. Then Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you are reading, Philip asked? How can I, he said, unless someone explains it to me? So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. This is the passage of scripture the eunuch was reading. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from earth. The eunuch asked Philip, Tell me, please, who is the prophet talking about, himself or someone else? Then Philip began with that very passage of scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. As they travelled along the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, Look, here is water. What can stand in the way of my being baptised? And he gave orders to stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water and Philip baptised him. When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away and the eunuch did not see him again, but went on his way rejoicing. Philip, however, appeared at Azotus and travelled about preaching the gospel in all the towns until he reached Caesarea. Thanks, Alan. As Amy and I settled ourselves and our children into the seats of the 747, the captain came over the PA system and said, uh, there's a flight coming from Melbourne that's been delayed just a little bit, so we're going to wait for that flight uh, until it arrives. And eventually, of course, it did arrive, and people got on the plane, and we took off. And about 16 hours later, we landed in San Francisco. And uh, in, in those 16 hours, we discovered that we were going to be really tight in getting our connecting flight to Chicago, and that was the um, uh, destination so that we could attend Amy's brother's wedding, so time was sort of of the essence here. And uh, so we were um, getting a bit anxious about this connecting flight, and so when we landed, um, we got our luggage as quickly as we could, and we were running through San Francisco Airport. I don't think we'd ever been to San Francisco Airport before, so it was a bit of a, um, a mystery in some ways, but we were going as fast as we could pulling the kids along and dragging our luggage and we got there and almost breathed a sigh of relief because we got there in time. But we discovered as we arrived there that in fact the airline, knowing we were going to be late, had given our seats away. And so as we watched, they pulled the door locked in front of us and we looked at each other and asked, well, what are we going to do? Um, Another airline, United, that was our connecting flight, generously gave us tickets uh, to stay in a hotel overnight in San Francisco, uh, or I should say at the San Francisco airport. So we've never seen San Francisco, but we spent a day and a night at the San Francisco airport hotel and um, you know, sort of made a mini adventure of it. The next day we went back to the airport and the same thing happened. Once again, they locked that door in front of us saying they didn't have seats. And finally, for some reason that I don't really understand to this day, uh, the man came out and said, come on, 
and he let us on and so we got to the wedding um, it was a bit of an adventure but the the lasting thing is the emotion of having a door slammed in your face and locked and I wonder if you've ever had that experience I suspect many of you have had that um, um, that very experience. And the person that we're talking about in, in a way that dominates the story is a man who has had doors slammed in his face. Uh, the story begins in uh, Acts chapter 8 verse 26 by talking, to, talking about the angel of the Lord who tells Philip, go south to the road, the desert road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. Now last week when we met with Philip, he was way up in the northern area of Samaria. And so now he's got to make a long banana-shaped journey down to Gaza, which is the very southernmost point of Israel. It's right at the border. It's the launching off point into the desert and on the way to Egypt. And that's where Philip is told to go. And Philip isn't told why he should go there. He isn't told what he's going to do there. He's just told to go. And Philip, being that sort of person, I guess, does what he's told by God. And so here he is down to Gaza. And he goes on this journey, and along the way he meets with this Ethiopian eunuch. Now, uh, I teach the high school class, and uh, so in a sense we're participating in the high school class today. And uh, so it's a composite um, group, and it's a bit of a PG lesson, because I would ask my class, what's a eunuch? And I wonder how they would answer that. Uh, I suspect that most of you know what a eunuch is, but... Um, just to be safe, I'm going to read a verse from Deuteronomy that does apply to a eunuch. Deuteronomy 23 verse 1 says this, No one whose testicles are crushed or whose penis is cut off shall be admitted to the assembly of the Lord. So we can all be uncomfortable together today. Um, there are certain rules and regulations for the temple like there would be for any temple about who goes in. And the closer you get to the temple, the more rules there are that apply. The more restrictions, the more things that say this door is closed to you. And so it's been found, uh, the, the plaque that was in the temple in Jerusalem that says no foreigners and no women go beyond this point. So you've got almost a series of concentric rings and certain people, well pretty much anybody can go into the first level, but r fewer and fewer and fewer can approach God, you might say, in this temple experience. And here's this Ethiopian eunuch, and he's disqualified in every imaginable way from going in. Uh, a eunuch is somebody who, based on that verse that I just read, doesn't qualify to enter. He's a foreigner, which would be enough to keep him out. There are all sorts of things that work against him. And yet, there's more to say about this man because he's described as an important official in charge of all the treasury of the Kandake. So, this is, a, this is a significant man who's got position, power, and status back home. But he's not back home. He's gone to Jerusalem, where in every way he's marked out as not belonging. And you say, what do you mean marked out? Do they have an inspector? Do they have a way of checking these things? And I suspect the answer to that is no. And yet, they know. Maybe the high-pitched voice gives them away. Maybe it's something else. I was once standing on the street corner in Newtown. I've lived there for more than 20 years now. And I, I heard this uh, uh, about this after the fact. Another uh, a student was there with his mother, and his mother looked over at this stranger on the street and said, "He's not from around here, is he?" 
What is it that gave me away? I've been living there a long time. Um, I'm, I'm, you know, Northwest European like most people in Newtown. There's something that gives you away. Can you imagine if you've come from, let's call it for the moment, Ethiopia, you're dressed differently, you speak differently, you, you, sound, you use different languages. Everything marks you out as different. And that's the nature of this man. And he is not going into this temple. So, well, what has he done? In, you know, if we were in the Sunday school class, I would say, okay, let's act this out. Let's assign roles. Each one take on a different role. But let's not just do the story as it's written here. In a sense, that's too easy. Let's have a bit of a dialogue now between you, whoever the eunuch's going to be in the class, and you, the queen of Ethiopia. How do you think that dialogue would play out? Nice to have you back from your trip to Jerusalem. How'd it go? Well, I'd like to tell you about this person named Jesus. Well, hang on. Tell me a bit about what it was like to go to the temple. You've been gone for months. You know, it's a, it's a month there and a month back. I hope it was worth it. Tell me about your, your travel experience. Tell me about these events. Well, there's something else I'd like to tell you about. Can, can you imagine how that scene plays out? About a month of travel to get to Jerusalem, to see, participating, to join in the people of God in worshiping the Lord, and yet he's excluded. The door is closed to him. All these um, troubles he'd gone to, and yet he could not have an experience that would have meant anything to him in Jerusalem. Sure, he could see some nice buildings, but you know, Jerusalem back then didn't have that many nice buildings. It's really about the one. And he's gone to Jerusalem to worship, and now he's on his way home. And, well, he's got one thing from his trip to Jerusalem, and it's not a snow globe that he can shake and you know see, see the city. It's, it's a scroll. He's got a scroll of the book of Isaiah, and that would mark him out as a wealthy man, a significant man. Being able to purchase a book in the first century, that marks you out. But this also marks him out. He's reading his book. Not that many people can do that. So here's a man who runs the treasury, who is able to read. This is an educated, sophisticated man who had no experience in Jerusalem. I don't think that's worth telling about. And yet here he is on his way home, and he's reading, and the Spirit tells Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. And so you can imagine, Philip's finished his couple hundred kilometer journey south, and he's near Gaza, and he sees his chariot, and he goes up to the chariot and loiters there for a while. So the first paragraph that we've looked at, the first section tells us that God tells Philip to go south where he meets a eunuch, and I'm going to say he's from the Sudan. The part of the world that we're talking about is, is not literally Ethiopia as we have it on our maps. In the first century mapping, that would be the area of Sudan, so farther south, go beyond Egypt, go down to Sudan. And so he does this, and he meets him at the border of the land. The second section that we'll talk about now is that God speaks of a man the eunuch can identify with. So Philip runs up to the chariot. In other words, the chariot's still moving. It's going through the desert. And he hears the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Now, if that sounds a bit funny to you, it's because people in the ancient world read out loud. 
it was considered almost magical, like black magic, to not read something out loud, to read in your head the way we would tend to do it. And so he gets to hear what this man is reading. And Philip says, do you understand what you're reading? It's a pretty straightforward question, and the man has a straightforward response. How can I understand this? Okay, It's a big, complex book. How can I understand it unless someone explains it to me? So he invites Philip to come up and sit with him. So now Philip is in this chariot. And I suspect the whole time he was in Jerusalem, nobody was going to invite him to anything. This guy is marked out in so many ways as a foreigner to the people of God. You don't even touch a person. You don't associate with a person like this. But he says to Philip, would you like to come up and sit with me and explain the scriptures? And here's what he was reading. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants, for his life was taken from the earth? So here's the question the eunuch has. Who's the prophet talking about? Himself or someone else? You've got this, let's say, this complex piece of poetry that talks about a person who's led to the slaughter, who is deprived of justice, who has no descendants. Who's he talking about? Is Isaiah talking about Isaiah? Or is he talking about somebody else? This is a debate that continues in biblical scholarship. Uh, If you go back to Isaiah chapter 41, which begins, this is in a section that runs from 40 onward. Isaiah 41 says this, But you, Israel, are my servant. But you, Israel, are my servant. So when you get to the servant material that we're looking at, this, this passage of a, a couple chapters that talks about the servant of the Lord, well, who is the servant? Is it Israel? Or is it someone else? Is it Isaiah? And so the question is significant, and it's a good question to ask. And Philip begins with this very passage to answer the question, and he tells him the good news about Jesus. He thinks this passage is about Jesus. How do you get from Israel, my servant, to Jesus being the servant? He was led like a sheep to the slaughter and as a lamb before its shears is silent. We think of Jesus as portrayed as a lamb. Is that something that would move him in that direction? We think of Jesus as a sacrificial lamb. This is a person who's being offered as a sacrifice, who's giving his life for the sins of many. And so Philip is talking about Jesus as the one who fulfills this passage. And who can speak of his descendants? They killed him. He was childless. And I wonder if this eunuch, for a moment, finds some kind of identification. Is this the line that rings true with him? Who can speak of his descendants? Who is this person who has no descendants? If they had read on in this scroll just a little bit, and I wonder if this is where Philip took them, they would have got to Isaiah chapter 56. In the third verse of Isaiah 56, it says this, Let no foreigner who is bound to the Lord say, The Lord will surely exclude me from his people. 
And let not the eunuch complain, I am only a dry tree. In other words, this passage is one of those things that includes in its breadth, in its scope, a hope for all people. Even for the foreigner and the eunuch who can be brought into the people of God. And so this eunuch with his concerns and maybe even elements of doubt having been rejected in Jerusalem is hearing about Jesus, somebody who does something new and inclusive that may even take in this Ethiopian eunuch. And so God speaks through the scriptures of a man the eunuch can identify with. So the last bit of this passage uh, says in verse 36 and following that God accepts a eunuch into his new assembly, into the new people of God. The story continues, as they traveled along the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, look, here's water. What can stand in the way of my being baptized? Now, I think these are great words for a couple uh, reasons. First of all, what can stand in the way of the eunuch joining Judaism? There's an initiation right into Christianity. It's baptism. There's an initiation right for a man into Judaism. And this man clearly is not going to undergo circumcision. And so it's pretty clear what stands in the way of him joining the people of God if that's how it's defined. But what can stand in the way of my being baptized? All of a sudden, as the terms are altered in such a significant way, that which disqualifies him from the temple and from Jerusalem and from the people of God doesn't seem to be at all significant. But do you think there's a bit of a defensive tone or a self-consciousness in the way this is phrased? What can stand in the way? Hey, Philip, is there any barrier left to my being baptized? I think you're seeing the insecurity of the man bubble up just for a moment. I know I can't go there, but what about here? Can I join in with what God is doing in and through Jesus? Can I participate in that? Uh, A couple chapters later, Peter is going to go to the house of Cornelius, who is another foreigner. And the Spirit is going to fall upon that house. And Peter's going to ask this question. Well, he's going to make this observation in chapter 10, verse 47. Then Peter said, Surely no one can stand in the way of their being baptized with water. The phrasing is exactly the same. What can stand in the way? Nothing can stand in the way of the foreigner, of even the eunuch, entering into this, well, let's call it an initiation rite to baptism. The thing that marks out the people of God. This is a significant moment. Um, in, in a Muslim context, a lot of times uh, families are, let's say, a little bit tolerant of people exploring different things. The dividing line is baptism. You are no longer a Muslim. You become a Christian if you undergo baptism. And that's the point at which families reject you. I attended a baptism just a few weeks ago. There was a young Muslim man who had become a Christian, um, somewhat secretly, you might say. And they asked at this church, please don't take any pictures. 
It was for the sake of this Muslim man, this formerly Muslim man who had become a Christian. Baptism was the thing that marked him out. And so it was a dangerous reality because it was so significant as a mark of him becoming a Christian. Here's an Ethiopian eunuch saying, what can stand in the way of me joining in this new movement associated with Jesus, which we call Christianity? And the answer is, his messed up genitalia no longer stands in the way, even if it keeps you from the temple. His being a foreigner no longer stands in the way, even if it keeps him from being involved in the temple. His being a member of a foreign court no longer stands in the way, even if it would keep him from going to the temple. None of those things, in other words, keep him from the living God. Because he's accepted on the basis of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the hope that we have that God will accept us into his new assembly. Do we identify with anybody in the story? Maybe you identify with Philip. That's well and fine. Maybe you identify with the eunuch because here's a man who is excluded from the temple. I don't think any of us could go into the temple. We're foreigners. We're strangers to these promises to these realities if they're associated with the temple but in Christ we're welcomed in to the things that God has done for us and so the man gives orders to stop the chariot then both Philip and the eunuch go down in the water and Philip baptizes him they come up out of the water the spirit of the Lord suddenly takes Philip away it's kind of anticlimactic isn't it he just disappears and the eunuch did not see him again but went on his way rejoicing he's coming back from Jerusalem I suspect full of a bit of pain a bit of frustration a bit of self-doubt but now he's on his way rejoicing what do you think he wants to tell the Kandake about? Jerusalem and the things he didn't see? or the man that he met in the scriptures this Jesus and the Philip who introduced him well let's get Philip off the stage Philip however appeared at Azotos and traveled about preaching the gospel in all the towns until he reached Caesarea um, Azotos is the ancient city of Ashdod so the first verse talks about Gaza the last verse talks about Ashdod these are the cities of the Philistines at, that make up southern Palestine southern Israel I wonder why Luke is telling us about these things there are five great cities of the Philistines and the job of the kings of Israel especially from David onward was to get to incorporate these foreign cities into the nation of Israel and now this new king King Jesus the son of David is performing this great work of bringing these cities into well, the kingdom that God is building around the person of Jesus. But the story doesn't end there. This isn't a story about Gaza or Ashdod. This is a story about taking the gospel, well, this is something that Daryl talked about last week, to the ends of the earth. Now, if you have a line, you have two ends. But if you have a globe, it's pretty hard to point to the ends of the earth. And so I think we have lots of ends of the earth within the book of Acts. Um, Spain may be the ends of the earth in the way Luke is thinking about these things. And Sudan may very well be the ends of the earth. If you look at literature from the Roman Empire of the first century, they view that as the ends of the earth. They'll talk about Ethiopia, as it's referred to here, as the ends of the earth. And now the gospel is going there. And do you think Philip was obedient? Of course he was. Do you think this man is going to go back and stay quiet 
about the experience he had? Or do you think the gospel will be planted in the ends of the earth? And so, again, we see the gospel in chapter 8. In a sense, skip over this uh, Judea and Samaria, and now it's going all the way to the ends of the earth in the person of this eunuch, this outsider, the ultimate outsider, who can be welcomed into God's presence itself. So, if I were with my uh, high school class, I would want to pull these things together by saying, okay, we've looked at the story of the eunuch. And we don't know the rest of the story, because I suspect Luke doesn't know the rest of his story, except that he now is part of the people of God. Then there's the story of Acts chapter 8. And then we have the story of Acts as a whole. And Luke tells us why he's writing this. It's written to Theophilus so that he would have a certainty concerning the things that Jesus has done and continues to do. And I would say this is a story of what Jesus continues to do as he grabs hold of this man and takes the gospel to the ends of the earth. And along the way, we're shown two panels... And I think this is Luke's way of talking about faith. Last week we looked at panel one. It was about a guy who was so impressed by magic and power, he said, I want that power. Along the way, Luke said he believed. And he was baptized. But what kind of faith did he have? Peter tells him, you are so caught up in sin and bitterness that I see nothing good for you. Magic, power, led to a certain type of faith. He believed something, but it didn't deal with the issue of sin. Where was the repentance? The turning to the one who takes away sin with his sacrifice, like Isaiah 53 tells us about. So then we turn to this panel, second panel, panel B, whatever you want to call it. We meet up with a person who doesn't see anything spectacular. There's just a guy loitering by his chariot. But it's the scriptures. He hears the scriptures and he encounters God through the scriptures. Many of us think if we just saw a miracle, oh, we'd have faith. It would be that much easier to believe. No, it's the Scriptures and the Spirit of God working through the Bible that generates faith which saves. That leads to the forgiveness of sins. Not everybody has the same experience. Uh, some people see amazing things. Some people never see amazing things. But all of us can find Jesus in the Scriptures if we just have a Philip to say, you know who Isaiah is talking about? He's talking about Jesus. And I wonder if God doesn't provide opportunities. God doesn't give you opportunities to sit down with somebody with an open Bible and say, let's see what it says about Jesus. Have you had a chance to do that? It's one of the things that is most effective in university ministry right around Australia. We have people leaving more college all the time. They graduate, they sign up for university ministry, and you say, what are you, what are you going to do? I'm going to read the Bible with people. And so, you, you know, over the years, you, you keep coming back to these women who have gone out, and they just sit and read the Bible with people. And the next generation of students come, having been converted, having been mobilized for ministry to serve the living God, because somebody sat and read the Bible with them. Now, my guess is almost everybody in the room can read. 
And so reading the Bible with somebody is within your skill set. Dare to be like Philip. Dare to be there when the Bible is open and point to Jesus. Point to the one who can generate or grant the forgiveness of sins. Because this is the way to get past the locked door. The temple will never be open to the eunuch. The temple wouldn't be open to us. But I want to close with some words from Hebrews chapter 10. In verses 21 and 22 of Hebrews chapter 10, and this is very much the theme of all of Hebrews, you could say, it says, Since we have a great high priest over the house of God, that's Jesus, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. There is access. There is a door that's been opened. There is a way to the living God. Not through that temple, but in the book of Acts, it almost seems like the farther you are from the temple, the better your chances of finding this God really are. This eunuch didn't get anything in Jerusalem, but in the desert, he met God in the person of Jesus. And we have this way open for us so that we can have a relationship with God and join with His people. We are the people of God. Praise Him for that. He has opened the way. Praise Him for that. Let's pray. Father, we pray that You would build in us faith and this faith would be be consistent with that certainty that Luke speaks of. We thank You that the Scriptures are open before us and we pray that You would teach us what they mean and how Jesus is revealed to us through them and in Jesus the forgiveness of sins. And we thank You that we have access to You, to God Himself and the privilege of being counted as His people, as Your people. We thank You for this in Jesus' name.